If you want my notes, you can text notes to the number that comes on the screen. And uh, what's in front of me will be sent to you. Monitors are a little weird, Chris. I have more up there than in here. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 29. Says this, so the king of Israel, or Ahab, and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel, Ahab, between the scale or the joint in the armor breastplate. Therefore, he said to the driver of the chariot, turn around and carry me out of the battle for I am wounded. Verse 35, and the battle continued that day and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until the evening he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. Came to tell you this morning, when you put on the breastplate of righteousness, you are wearing dunamis. The title of this message is wearing dunamis, the breastplate of righteousness. Let's pray. So Father, we declare that your word is true. Let every man be a liar. We declare, let your word be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Holy Spirit, I ask you right now to breathe upon your written Logos word, and I pray you would become Rhema. Lord, I pray right now that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, minds to understand what your spirit is saying. Holy Spirit, we declare no spirit but the Holy Spirit, but you is welcome here. We say fear, you have to go. We say any distractions, you have to go. We say Holy Spirit, come, rule and reign. Holy Spirit, we don't make room for you, but we give you the entire room. Father, I thank you, no one came to hear me. We all came to hear you, so we say speak, Lord. Your servant's listening. And all God's people said amen. And amen. Well, we are stewarding a prophetic word over our house that this would be a year of dunamis, that this would be a year that we would strengthen and fortify our faith. Dunamis is when the Holy Spirit's power goes from resting on you to abiding and dwelling in you. So we've been uh, talking about the foundations of our faith all year long, strengthening and fortifying the foundations of our faith, getting firm, getting solid in, in firm foundations of scripture and sound doctrine and theology. And so we're in a, a series right now on the full armor of, of God or the, or the whole armor of God. Last week we talked about the belt of truth. If you missed last week's message, please go back on the YouTube and watch it because I set up the whole concept of the armor of God and then I taught on truth. See, the reason why truth is so attacked is because Jesus is truth. And then when we take off the belt of truth, what we're doing is we are taking off the image of God or the image of Jesus. And when we wear the belt of truth, we are wearing his dunamis power. Can I get an amen? amen. This morning, we're going to talk about the second item of the armor. It's found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, stand therefore having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Someone say Righteousness. This is so important to understand, to strengthen and fortify your faith. There might not be another topic that is more important to the sound doctrine and the firmness of your faith in righteousness. 
My journey in righteousness started about 11 years ago where my spiritual father was a man named John Paul Jackson. And the only thing pretty much he talked about was righteousness. And for years, on a weekly basis, we would discuss righteousness together. Romans 14, 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness. Someone say righteousness. Peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, you seem a little sleepy this morning, church, so I want everybody to focus on me. I know it's a little cooler in here than last week. We apologize. We'll turn off the ACs and wake you up again next week, okay? I want you to follow me because this is really important because when you use terms that the church is familiar with, what happens is you unintentionally tune out and your mind tells you, I know this verse or I know this subject or I got this and then you miss the revelation of it. So here's the scary thing for the semi-mature believer is you could be familiar with something without having the revelation of it. What's so beautiful about a relationship with the Holy Spirit is you could read a text a thousand times, but when he breathes on it on that thousand and one time, it becomes alive. Watch. It's giving you a different aspect. It's saying something different, even though the doctrine stays the same. So I want you to come with me as we talk about this. So look at Romans 14 again. It says this, the kingdom of God, watch, is made up of what? Watch. It is the matter of heaven. I remember in school, freshman year, they're teaching about matter. And, and they said matter in science class is everything. I'm like, what do you mean matters everything? Well, matters this microphone and matters that chair and matters the solar system. And, and, and I remember having a hard time understanding the concept of how could it be everything and, 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 and how they explain it. It is literally what the universe and everything in it is made up of. Now watch, that is what the kingdom of God is like. It is made of righteousness. It is the DNA of heaven. It's what creates everything in the kingdom is formed from righteousness. Say righteousness. It's heaven's DNA. My son Preston was helping me with my sermon and he told me to tell a joke and be funny. So I'll tell you a story. Uh, when Heather and I were first married, we'd lay in bed at night and we'd watch those like crime forensic shows, you know, and, and, and someone would be free for 20 years and, and, and they would find one little string of DNA that would bring them back to the crime. And, and we'd lay in bed at night and just we're newlyweds and in love and, and we'd sit there and I'd be like, if I was, was going to kill you, <laughs> I would... I would light the house on fire and burn you, burn you in it. And then, and then I'd ruin all the evidence. And she's like, no, no, no. They would find the trace evidence of how you started the fire and they'd lead it back to you. She's like, no, they wouldn't find your body. I would chop you up into tiny little pieces and feed you to some alligator because they only have two hours before it decomposes in their, their belly and, and there'd be no trace and I'd get away scot-free and we'd sit there and talk about how we would kill each other. But in those shows, watch, they would, they would find one little strand, just a piece of spit, just a piece of a hair, one small thing, watch, and that DNA would link somebody to the crime. Do you know that heaven has a DNA that connects you to it? 
Oh, you all know the story of John chapter 9, uh, the story where Jesus spit in the mud and, and he mixed mud and he put it in the man's eyes who was blind and then his eyes opened. And, and, and you know, you've seen pe preachers talk about that, people talk about that, and people thought it was about the mud. It has nothing to do with the mud. It had to do with the spit. Watch, because in that saliva is where we find DNA. So Jesus said this, watch, I'm going to take my DNA and I'm going to put my DNA where your DNA is dysfunctional. And then when heaven's DNA comes upon your dysfunctional DNA, you receive my DNA and that's where your supernatural healing comes from. Watch. So it doesn't matter if it's a physical healing, if it's an emotional healing, if it's trauma, it doesn't matter where it comes from. Watch. Righteousness is the DNA that heals you. Righteousness is littered throughout the entire word of God. What do I mean when I say righteousness? The word righteousness is the word dikinesuni. And here's what it means. God's divine approval or God's judicial approval. When I preach on righteousness, it's hard when I preach in Spanish because they just translate it justice. And the reason why they translate it justice is because you cannot disconnect the word righteousness and justice from each other because righteousness is heaven's justice. It is what is divinely approved or the approval of God, what is approved in his eyes. When you break down the etymology of this word, it's a judicial verdict, approving or disproving. It means determining who's innocent or who's guilty or just in the eyes of God, determining who's innocent. I gave you a lot of definitions for righteousness, but let me give you a simplified one. Righteousness is intentionally living right in God's eyes. Righteousness is intentionally living right in God's eyes. Notice I said God's eyes, not your eyes. It's not when you think you can sleep at night so you're good with God. It's not when you think you and God have an understanding. It's not when, when, when you feel like you're at a good place. It's what God's word says. And there's a lot of people that think that they're living right, but you're only living right in your eyes. See, in your eyes, you feel like you're a generous person, but in God's eyes, you're a thief and you don't tithe. In your eyes, you think you're good because you're married in God's sight. In God's eyes, you're in fornication and adultery. In, in, in your eyes, you think if two people love each other, why can't they be with each other? In God's eyes, he said, I created marriage for one man and one woman. So watch, your eyes need his spit. Because you're only seeing, watch, through your lens. Righteousness is when you see through heavens. Watch, and then it becomes not being right anymore. I'm not trying to be right. I'm not trying to convince. You know those Christians that love to quote on social media, don't judge me. I love it anytime I preach on sin and they're like, you, know, you don't judge us. No one's judging you. But trust me, you will be judged. And he's a righteous judge. Get ready for it. No, but here's the thing. I love my friends on social media and they're like, this isn't gonna win people outside the church. I'm like, I'm not trying to win people outside of the church. That's not what the social media is for. I'm, I'm pastoring people inside the church. That's my job as a pastor. And then we'll go together outside the church. Where do we lead? Uh, where's Chris Donald? How many people were led to the Lord last week? 70 people. Come on, all of heaven rejoices.
So when the church is equipped, then the church goes out and reaches the lost. But somehow in our lukewarm, woke Christianity, you thought that winning the lost was the pastor's job. And then if you get them to an altar on Sunday and they say one prayer and leave and live the same, that all of a sudden they made it to heaven. That's not what the gospel's about. That's not what this is about. Righteousness is something that has to be embedded into our lives, into our hearts. So I want you to do this. I want you to start paying attention. I want you to focus when you hear this word righteousness and how important this word is. I told you my, my journey of righteousness started about 11 years ago as John Paul began to mentor me and disciple me. And instantly as I began to talk about righteousness on a regular basis, I started realizing how many people weren't talking about righteousness. I heard a lot of preachers preach a grace that wasn't theologically sound. I heard a lot of people trying to manipulate scripture about how you can live your best life and how God just wants to bless you and you're the greatest thing God ever created in all eternity and existence and, 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 and all of this stuff. A lot of things about how great you are. But I didn't hear a lot of sermons about how great he is. And so I started noticing how many pastors and preachers and Christians weren't talking about righteousness. And then I noticed something even worse. Not only were they not talking about righteousness, but I saw them omitting it or removing it from scripture. One of the most famous scriptures is Matthew 6, You know it says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything will be added. I was in a prayer meeting and a pastor got up and he said, wow. he started praying. He said, we're just going to declare that we're going to seek first the kingdom of God and everything will be added. And I stood there and I said, well, what about the righteousness? And then I noticed that it wasn't just that pastor that left it out of scripture. I, I noticed I started hearing all of these scriptures quoted on a regular basis where people were leaving out righteousness. Proverbs 24, I heard people say all the time, although you may fall seven times, the Lord will pick you back up again. When scripture says, no, 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 the righteous may fall seven times. But the Lord will pick you back up. So in fact, that there's a lot of Christians, there's a lot of believers, there's a lot of people that fall down and stay down. And the Lord isn't picking them back up. Watch, there's more. How about James 5, 16? Have you heard people say it like this? Fervent prayers availeth much. That's not what scripture says. It says the effectual fervent prayer of who? The righteous availeth much. That means there's a lot of people that have gibberish prayers and pray for a long time and think they have it down together and have it poetically put together and do all of these prayers, but they're not availing much. Watch, they're not powerful. Why? They're missing righteousness. How about this one? I know you've heard this one before. Uh, how about Proverbs 13? It says this, the sinner's wealth is stored up for the righteous. How many times have you heard someone say, well, the sinner's wealth is stored up for us? It depends. It may or may not be for you. Do you know why righteousness has been either intentionally or accidentally omitted or left out of scripture? It's because it's been left out of our life. And because our lives have not been built on the DNA of heaven, on the matter of heaven, it's missing from our vocabulary. It's missing from our interpretation of scripture because it is missing from our lives. And church, it's a dangerous place to be when you're familiar with something but have no revelation of it. 
Let me give you some practical advice. When we're going through the full arm of God and we're talking about truth or when we're talking about righteousness, underline it with one color, the same color. Every single scripture you see on righteousness, underline it in the same color or righteous. And you'll start recognizing how many times you cannot get through a Proverbs or, or Psalms without seeing righteousness. Do you know that there is over a thousand scriptures on righteousness? Do you know if you sat down and read all the scriptures, it would take you approximately three to four hours just to read every scripture on righteousness. It is littered throughout the gospel. It is littered throughout the Old and New Testament. We see it in the full arm of God where we're teaching out of Ephesians 6.14. We see righteousness in the middle of the most famous sermon ever. The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. We see the righteous live by faith according to Galatians chapter 3. We know the righteous are bold as a lion according to Proverbs 28.1. We see that God hears the prayers of the righteous according to 1 Peter 3.12. We know the righteous are never forsaken according to Psalms 37.25. We know that righteousness is what yokes or unifies believers. When 2 Corinthians 6 tells us what does righteousness have in common with unrighteousness when it tells us not to be equally yoked with unbeliever. And we know the only thing according to scripture we are persecuted for is righteousness. So watch, the greater the persecution means the more you're reflecting heaven. Do you know that entire cities are spared of righteousness? I want you to think about this for a second. You look at when God wiped out the entire earth with a flood. Who did he choose? He chose a righteous man named Noah to rebuild the earth. When he was sick of Satan gloating, he said, hey, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's righteous. It's one thing for Satan to attack you. It's another thing for God to point you out as one for Satan to test because that's how righteous you are. It is a powerful thing when you start looking at righteousness. Watch. It has the ability to change families, to change cities and to change nations look at this fast Genesis chapter I'm gonna go try to go through it Genesis chapter 18 it's the story I'll go quick it's the story of of Sodom and Gomorrah Sodom and Gomorrah was a city known for its grotesque immorality and, and mainly homosexual practice it's the it's the city that the men were trying to have sex with men and angels and and, and were trying to rape and kill angels you can go read it for your own in the book of Genesis and so in this story God says I'm gonna destroy this city called Sodom and so Abraham who was known as the father of faith or a father of righteousness this, he begins to plead with God on behalf of that city. Put Genesis chapter 18 up there. And here's what he did. He says this. He said, Lord, would you spare the city for 50 righteous? And God said, I will spare the city for 50 righteous. And then he starts negotiating with God. He goes to 40. Can I get a 40? Can I get a 40? We spare the city for 40. Can I get a 30? We spare the city for 30. I hear 30. 30 right here. 30 right here. Can I get a 20? And then he gets all the way down to 10. And God says, I will spare the city for 10 righteous. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but I know the only difference between 50 righteous and 10 righteous is 40 righteous. So if God would spare a city for 50 righteous and he would spare for 10 righteous... And it didn't matter between 50 to 10. We don't know why, according to scripture, that, that, that uh, Abraham stopped at 10, but 10 is where he stopped. Maybe he couldn't count more than 10 righteous in the city to even ask God to spare it for, but he stops at 10. So here's what we know, which is theologically sound, is if God will spare a city for 50 or 10, then here's the thing, watch. Righteousness is what saves our cities. 
So whoa, 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 whoa. Some of you are like, my family's so dysfunctional, but how many righteous are in it? Oh, no, you don't know how many, you don't know about my uncles. You don't know about my dad. You don't know about our history. I know, but is there just one righteous in it? Because one righteous person in your family could turn around the family. Watch. I know America is getting bad. I know we're coming into the political season. Watch. I see it with my own eyes. We see AI coming in. We see corruption coming in. Watch. We see the fabric of our nation absolutely interiorating. The spirit of Antichrist is loose, but watch. There's more than 10 here. If he would save Sodom for 10, surely he could have mercy on America for more than 10. Righteousness is what changes cities and nations. But you have to watch out because righteousness will save nations, but your self-righteousness will not. What is self-righteousness? It's a self-confidence of superiority from the satisfaction in one's own moral achievements. What are you saying, pastor? I'm saying you think that you're righteous by your works. Romans 3.10 says, for it is written, there's no one righteous, not one. Uh Uh-oh. The prophet Isaiah said, your righteousness is like filthy rags. If you look at that in Hebrew, what it really means, it means the cloth of a woman after her menstrual cycle. He said, that is the degree of what your righteousness is. On your best day, that's how righteous you are. Romans 3.23 says this, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So it leaves us with a question, how do we become righteous? Well, in scripture, there's two kinds of righteousness. The first is what we call imputed righteousness. What is imputed righteousness? Imputed righteousness is the free gift of Christ when Jesus took our place of sin and exchanged his righteousness for our unrighteousness through his sacrifice on the cross. Can I get an amen? Imputed means this. It's credited to someone else on behalf of another. It means you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imputed righteousness is the moment you give your life to Jesus. The moment you put your faith in him. Your sinful rags, your unrighteousness, you trade places with Jesus who became sin and paid the debt of your sin. And what he does is he gives you his righteousness. That's imputed righteousness. The second righteous is what we call imparted righteousness. Imparted righteousness is when our lives or our actions and character begin to reflect the righteousness of Christ. 1 John 3, 7 says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteousness. So this is when the Christ that was for us now becomes the Christ in us. Someone say dunamis. Remember that salvation graph that I showed you, put it up on the screen, where, where I taught on uh, the process of salvation uh, a couple months ago, where you, where you get saved or you're justified or you're not guilty, and then you're regenerated, you're a new creation, and then you're sanctified and you're like, like Christ or become Christ-like. 
So I wanted to show you where you become righteous in this. Go to the next one. See, at that first stage when you are justified, that is when the imputed righteousness comes. The moment you confess your sin, you are, you are not guilty. You're justified by Jesus' payment of sin on your behalf. That is when you are imputed righteousness. Then when you begin your journey of regeneration as a new creation, that is where the imparted righteousness comes and you begin to reflect the one you love. So we're talking about righteousness, but in particular, the armor of God, where scripture calls it a breastplate of righteousness. So the breastplate of righteousness or righteousness has a job and its job is to guard your heart. Now here's where we're really going to get into it today because everything I just taught you on righteousness has a purpose and its purpose is to guard your heart. One of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, I may even call it my life verse, is found in Proverbs chapter 4. And here's what it says. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Underline it in your Bible, highlight it on your Bible apps, memorize this scripture. It says, above all else, I have quoted this to more Christians, more believers. Leave it up on the screen for a second. I have quoted this to more people that I could remember because this scripture right here, watch, is how you make it. Watch, this scripture with your daily encounters is how you survive. This is what happens when you leave a, a worship service and you encounter the spirit of joy. You felt the presence of God and you go home to bad news or bad report. This is what happens when you go back to the consequences maybe of your bad decisions. This is where you go through the battles of life where you have to learn how to guard your heart. Church, I'm telling you right now, this with your daily encounters or better, this in your daily encounters is how you will not only survive, but this is how you will thrive spiritually. And here's what scripture says, everything flows from it. What does that mean? Your life and your future is on the line with your ability to guard your heart. Your life and your future, your spiritual health. Scripture says, beloved above all, I wish you to prosper and be in good health as your soul prospers. Your entire ability to prosper and for it to be well with you is determined by Proverbs 4. Your ability to guard your heart. And this is the number one reason why people fall away from the faith. This is it right here. They couldn't guard their heart. This is it. So when offense comes in, they couldn't guard their heart. When temptation comes in, they didn't guard their heart. When lies of the enemy comes in, they didn't guard their heart. When church hurt came in, they didn't guard their heart. When the enemy came in, they didn't guard their heart. And so the enemy is working. He's looking for a way to get to your heart because he knows if he has your heart, he has everything. He has your life. There's a prophetic word over our house this year that no one will fall away. We won't lose one. I came to help you prepare, to partner with that prophetic word. How do you know that you know that you will not be one that falls away this year? Because you are going to get efficient at guarding your heart. The word heart means this in the Hebrew, lay be. It means this, the center of everything. Now this is one of those things where, again, people can be familiar, but we don't really understand what we're talking about. So when scripture talks about heart, it is talking about the inner man. It's talking uh, figuratively, but also spiritually. It's widely used for feelings, will, emotions, intellect, inner self. 
And according to the Bible, the heart is the center not only of spiritual activity, but all of the operations of human life. In fact, the Bible uses the words heart and soul almost interchangeably as it uses different texts. Dr. Michael Brown defines the heart as the seat of my emotions, the core of my being, the guts of how I feel and what I believe. The best simplified definition I can give you today is when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the core of a person. When I talk about your heart, I am talking about the core of who you are. It's important that we understand what God means when he's talking about the heart. Let me give you a caution about dumb things that people say. (laughs) Jesus never said to trust your heart. Jesus never said, go with your heart. You hear this a lot of times from immature spiritual people where they say stuff like, I'm just gonna go with my heart on this one. No, 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 no. That's how you got in the last bad three situations. I'm not talking about someone that's discerning something and you're learning how to hear the voice of God and learning how to get clarity. Listen, but the Holy Spirit has a voice and God's word has his words. Listen, go with God's word and go with God's voice. Go with godly counsel and godly wisdom. Listen, stop going with your heart. Now, let me show you why from a scripture perspective. Here's what scripture says in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is most deceitful of all things. Look at this, desperately wicked. Who can know it? Romans 1, 21 says, for although they knew God, they dishonored him as God or gave thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. Look at this. Their foolish hearts were darkened. So we see hearts are wicked and hearts are foolish. Mark 7, 21 says, from within or out of the heart of a man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. What do we else we know about the heart? We know the heart is very important to the Lord. First Samuel chapter 16, seven, the prophet Samuel, one of the greatest prophets who walked the face of the earth was about to anoint one of Jesse's sons, David's older brother, Eliab as king. And he saw him and he looked the part. He looked like a king. He was handsome. He was tall. He was the oldest. And he went towards him to anoint him. And God stopped the prophet and said, you keep looking on the outward appearance. You're so distracted with people's followers. You're so, uh, you're so distracted with their net worth. You're so distracted with their influence. You're so uh, distracted with what they appear or present off as who they are. But here's what God's word says. He said, I'm focused on their heart. Church, we have to be people that learn how to recognize the issues of the heart. You know that God wants to be loved with all of your heart? In fact, that's the greatest commandment, Matthew 23, 37. He said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. That is how God wants to be loved with the very core of who you are. Do you know people that are pure in heart encounter God? 1 Samuel 13, 4, it says this, after David, or uh, after Saul sinned, God said, I'm now gonna anoint a man who has sought after me with his own heart. Matthew 5, 8 says it like this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those that are pure in heart, for they will see God. Hear me today. Those that have a pure heart encounter God. Your relationship with God is going to go to new levels when your heart is pure before the Lord. And this is one of the most important things I came to tell you today, that God tests your heart. 
I wrote my Jezebel book that everyone is submitted until their will is tested. And everybody thinks that your reasons, your motives, your heart is pure until you are tested. And here's what we know by scripture. God tests the heart of his people. Proverbs 17, 3, the crucible for silver and a furnace for gold. And the Lord tests the heart. This morning, I wanted to bring to your attention three heart tests. There was many things that I was praying about this week, but these were the three that settled in my heart as I prepared this message for you. Three different tests your heart will go through that your heart must pass. This is three tests that you will have to guard your heart on your journey of Proverbs 4. Above all else, guard your heart for it's a wellspring of life. These are three tests that almost every Christian is going to find themselves facing. And your future will be determined by your ability to pass these tests. Number one, I'm calling it the faithful test. Have you been faithful with little? Matthew 25, 21 says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Have you been faithful over little? I will set you over much. Most people never get to the much place in life because they weren't faithful in the little places in life. I want to ask you today, have you been faithful in your serving the Lord? Are you faithful in obeying scripture? Are you living a morally, sexually pure life? Have you been faithful? Do you keep your word? Are you a person of truth? Are you faithful? Are you faithful in your giving to God? Matthew 6.21 says, for where your treasure is, there also will be your heart. So many people say, I love God so much. I love God's house so much. I, I love the things of God so much. And, and I would respond, your bank account will reflect what you spend your money on and where your heart really is at. Because if you looked at your bank statements, you might love online streaming services more. You might love Honda more or Toyota more. It will show you, watch, where your heart is, your Money or your treasure is where your heart is. Are you faithful in trials? Are you still faithful to God? I'm reminded of Job who was faithful in his trials and when all of his friends around him said just curse God and die, he held on to his righteousness in trials. I call this the weight of life. When you are standing in faith, you love God, but you're not sure if you really believe everything that you've learned and you feel the weight of life beginning to come on you. The weight of life feels like bills. The weight of life feels about disappointments. The, 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 the weight of life feels like losses. The weight of life feels like these things that weren't going how you thought they were gonna go and you stood in faith and you believed, but it didn't turn out the way you wanted to. And where will your faithfulness be when it hasn't turned out how you wanted it to go? Are you faithful in your disappointment? Church, are you hearing well done, good and faithful? I personally don't believe that this is just something that you hear at the end of your life. In fact, the first time I heard the Lord audibly speak to me, this was in 2014, when he told me to preach on righteousness for a year. And the only thing I preached around the nation as a traveling evangelist was on one topic, righteousness. And I finished at Matt Wakefield's church in Seattle. And I got on my knees on the corner of the stage on my last sermon of the year in December. And as soon as I got down on my knees, I heard the Lord say, well done. 
Do you know that this is something that you can hear on a regular basis? Well done, faithful, when you are faithful to obey God. Proverbs 24, 10 says, if you faint in the day of adversity, how small is your strength? The message version says, if you fall to pieces in crisis, there wasn't much to you in the first place. You will be tested in your faithfulness. I would encourage you to search your heart today. Are you faithful? Number two, next test your heart will be tested in is the blessing test. How do you respond to favor and success? 1 Samuel 15, 17, when God is warning King Saul, who was the first chosen or man chosen king for Israel, here's what he said to him. He said this, you were once small in your own eyes. There used to be a season that you walked in humility. There used to be a season you were humble before the Lord. There used to be a season that you were poor in spirit. But what happened was is you became rich in resources. So you lost your poor in spirit with rich in resources because you started believing all of the good reports about you. Proverbs says a man is tested by his praise. So what happens when people start telling you how great you are? What happens when they start telling how amazing you are, how valuable you are, how smart you are, how wise you are, how beautiful you are, and they start praising you? What happens when your net worth starts going up and all of a sudden you went from, from barely making it to all of a sudden you got years in reserve and everything's looking good and all of a sudden watch you're not praying like you used to pray when you had needs you're not praying like you used to pray when you had to pray every day just to make it for that daily bread all of a sudden something changes inside of you you think that all of a sudden you're God's gift to the church and they couldn't make it without you and if you didn't show up the whole place would just fall apart because you are here you're so important and everywhere you go you're important you're so important in fact you change environments. You're an atmosphere shifter. It's about you. You know, you gotta be careful with this. Our church grew from no one to a lot of people in four years. And this is something I, I, I've had to personally really guard my heart with because all of a sudden something grows and then people try to get you to change how you started it with. I was in that back room before I came out here and I heard the Lord correct me and he said, this sermon's not about you. I'm like, yes, Lord. All of a sudden you can start, watch, thinking all of this is about you. Can you pass the success, the success test? Can you pass the favor test? How many times did the children of Israel, God bless them and then they forgot I'll never forget, Steve and I were beyond poor. Pastor Steve. I mean, I was poor. He was really poor. And we're an evangelist traveling around the nation, living, wedding paycheck to paychecks. The paychecks didn't even meet the needs. We're just living to faith to faith. And then we're in Israel and God starts speaking to people prophetically about this media business and God speaks to them about real estate and and, and I think the average realtor does like two or three houses their first year and he did like, like 60 the first year. And God just supernaturally blessed him. And then him and I were preaching at Pastor Fidel's dad's church and we're ministering there on a Sunday. And, and, and I, I look over after the service and I see Pastor Steve laying fully prostrate on the stairs of the altar, weeping, thanking the Lord. 
And I remember looking back in that moment thinking that's why God's going to trust him with much. Watch, because he didn't allow him to lose his desperation for him. I'm warning you, your heart will be tested when you're praised. Your heart will be tested when there's success. Your heart will be tested when there's favor. Number three, the third test, your heart will be tested, is the betrayal test. Can you love your betrayers? How quickly can you forgive? Have you truly forgiven? Do you love your enemies? Have you prayed and blessed your enemies? How about this one, church? Have you thanked God yet for your betrayal? No, because most people are stuck in this multi-decade pattern of going through your, your healing and your deliverance, but really what it means is, is you're not forgiving. Because in order for you to forgive, there has to be a let go. Watch, and you let go of them and you grab a hold of him. Watch, and there's this shift that takes place in you that you begin to realize, watch, if it wasn't for the betrayer, you actually wouldn't be who you are today. Watch, most people get stuck as a victim and they can't get past what the church did to you, what a family member did, what an evil person. Now hear my heart today. I'm not saying it's not evil. What I am saying is what they meant for evil. God turns to good. See, nowhere in the modern American church do we talk about these things as it may be something that you need in your life. Ah, maybe you have too many friends. Maybe you need a betrayer. Oh, you think about this from a biblical perspective. Jesus had 12 disciples, but he only needed one to betray him. Oh, no, no, we look at it and we look at Jesus washing Judas' feet. He said, one of you is a betrayer. See, if you and I were Jesus, we'd be like, I caught you. You're out of this thing. Plans foiled. You didn't get me. I'm gonna transcend through the mist again. No, we say unbiblical little, little new age things like shame me once or, you know, wrong me once, shame on you. Wrong me twice, shame on me. Or be a Christian. <laughs> I, think, I, I think Jesus said 70 times seven to one of his disciples. Now hold on, watch this. Jesus could not have saved you without Judas. Oh, no, no, Peter, who walked on water, he went to got you to heaven, him walking on water. No, none of the other disciples and any of their great works and any of their things, they went to help you get to heaven. Watch, because without a betrayer, there wouldn't have been an arrest. Without an arrest, there wouldn't have been a conviction. Without the conviction, there wouldn't have been a cross. Without the cross, there wouldn't have been the death and the grave. There wouldn't have been the resurrection of your sins. Watch, without the resurrection of your sins, there wouldn't have been salvation. Watch, you needed a Judas. You need a betrayer, watch, to get you in position for the perfect will of God but here's the thing in the middle of a betrayer you're not thinking about the perfect will of God that's why Jesus said do what you came for and he's washing the feet of the man who's about to betray him ah because he was passing a betrayal test if you're going to guard your heart you're gonna to have to pass this betraying test. 
And this is a test that most people in the church don't pass. And they say unbiblical, non-Christian things like, I can't forgive them for that. And I would say, then you're not a Christ follower. Because he saved us and forgave us from so much. Watch, it is our duty. It is our privilege. It is our honor, watch, to forgive. Let me read the scripture over you. It says this, Romans 8, 28. says, for those who love God, look at this, all things work together for good. That means your betrayer, your betrayal works things for good. See, you will pass the heart test when you learn to guard your heart. So how do you actually guard your heart? When I'm talking about guarding your heart, Scripture says you, did it, you do it with all diligence. It is the highest priority or the greatest value. I want you to stop for a second. I want you to think about how you protect valuable things in your life. You use passwords. You use locks. You use safes, safe deposit boxes. Where do you put your valuable things? How do you protect things in your home and in your life? What are the safeguards that you put up? Now imagine if you put more intentionality into guarding your heart than you did your money. Imagine if you put more intentionality in guarding your heart than you did your jewelry or whatever it is the thing that you put value on. So how do you really know if you're guarding your heart? It's really simple. If your heart is leaning towards what's right in God's eyes or pulling away from what is right in God's eyes. That is how you know if you're guarding your heart. Let me simplify this for it. You are aware of your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. If you're in church services and you easily get offended, you haven't done a good job guarding your heart. If you find yourself thinking about someone who's wronged you and how much you dislike them or even hate them, you're not doing a good job guarding your heart. If you see someone on social media and you immediately begin to think negatively about them, you're not guarding your heart very well. So this breastplate of righteousness is designed to guard our heart. So what does it guard our heart from? And the answer is unrighteousness. The breastplate of righteousness guards our heart from unrighteousness. I asked the Lord, I said, Lord, how do I guard my heart? How do I practically do it? I get the scripture, I see the doctrine, I see the, the theology. Help me understand, how do I do this? And when I asked the Lord, how do I guard my heart? He said, look at the garden. It's amazing how many times the Lord tells me to go back to the garden. And in Proverbs chapter, or excuse me, Genesis chapter three, you see the story of Adam and Eve getting removed from the garden. And in verse 23, it says, therefore the Lord banished or removed them from the garden of Eden to work the ground which had been taken. So he drove the man, or Adam and Eve, and stationed a cherubim or an angel on the east of the garden. Along with it, a whirling sword of flame to guard the way to tree of life. Watch this. Adam and Eve's partnered with sin. They weren't wearing a belt of truth. They disobeyed God and they partnered with unrighteousness. So God removes them from the garden because the garden is type and shadow of heaven. And just like uh, unrighteousness wasn't allowed in the garden, unrighteousness will not be allowed in heaven. So then he sends an angel 
with a fiery sword to prevent Adam and Eve from getting back in. There's some Jewish philosophers that think that Adam and Eve tried many different ways to get back in the garden, but they couldn't because this cherubim angel was assigned a responsibility, watch, not to keep Adam and Eve out, to keep unrighteousness out. And so how did they do it? He had a sword that was on fire. Church, the word of God is teaching us how to guard our hearts. The sword on fire is the Holy Spirit in the word of God. Watch your intimate relationship with the Holy Spirit and the word of God is how you guard your heart. Because as you read the word in daily encounter, talk to the Holy Spirit. He will tell you how you're not guarding your heart. He will warn you about unrighteousness coming in. Have you ever gone to the Lord and complained about your spouse? She's laughing. And then God starts speaking to you about you. You're like, no, Lord, I want to talk about that. I would talk about her. Or when you start talking about other individuals and complaining about them and then God starts speaking about you, your relationship with the word and your relationship with the Holy Spirit is how you guard your heart. Look at this, 2 Timothy 3.16 ties that together. It says this, all scripture, the word, is God-breathed or Holy Spirit-inspired. It is used for teaching and rebuking, correcting, look at this, and training in righteousness. Scripture and the Holy Spirit will mentor you and teach you how to guard your heart. Okay. Here's what I need you to understand today. When you actually guard righteousness in your life, you are guarding your heart. When you are aware, let me use this phrase, what is right in God's eyes, it is the greatest way to guard your heart. Because you could be doing what is right in your eyes and your breastplate is off. The breastplate of righteousness guards from unrighteousness. Let's go back to our story that we opened up with in, in uh, what are we, 1 Kings 21. 1 Kings 21, it's telling a story of two kings. One king's name's Ahab. He's the king of Israel. The other king is the king Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. Now, Ahab goes to Jehoshaphat and he's trying to help him fight a battle. And as he goes into the battle, the king of Judah says to Ahab, let's inquire of prophets if God's going to bless us or not. So Ahab has his prophetic liars that are his friends of Jezebel that he's kept on the side. Remember, all of the prophets have been kicked out, so the only thing he has is woke prophets that are under his payroll. And so he brings his false woke prophets together, and they all start telling him what they want to hear. Reminds you of you two prophets. They all start telling him, you have victory, you have victory, you have victory. But Jehoshaphat starts feeling something kind of weird. He's like, uh... Is there any true prophets of the Lord? And here's what Ahab says. He says, well, there's a guy named Micah, but I don't like him because he doesn't prophesy good things about me. There's a church down the street, but I'm not a big fan because they don't tell me what I want to hear. And here's what he said. He said, let's go inquire of the Lord. And so Micah gives him a pretend prophecy. He's like, oh yeah, everything's going to be great. It'll be awesome. You're going to win. And the king starts breaking down and has an emotional breakdown. He's like, would you, would you just prophesy what God says? He says, fine, you're going to die. 
So Ahab says, lock him up. Keep him in prison with no food till I get back. We're going to prove his prophecy wrong. Here's what he does. They're going into battle and he decided he was going to disguise himself and not wear kingly robes. Acts 21. So he said this, watch. They can't kill me if I disguise myself and I don't look like a king. Watch. He thought that he could outsmart the judgment of God. Reminds me of Christians that think they can outsmart living righteous lives. And here's what the Bible says. It says a certain man. You know why it says certain man? Because we don't know who he is. Jewish philosophers believe it might be Nahum, the great warrior, but we're not sure who it was. Some random guy, watch, scripture we know says, threw a random arrow. Do you know what a random arrow means? It means it was not designed or designated for the king. This is so important. It was shot up in the air and it wasn't, it did not have a purpose to hit Ahab except for God grabbed a hold of the arrow. The same way that God grabbed a hold of a rock from David sling and put it in the target of Goliath's head. He took that arrow, watch, and according to scripture, it hit him in the joint of the breastplate. Do you know what the joint of the armor is? Watch. It is a hole in his breastplate. Watch this. The wicked, unrighteous king was taken out by a random arrow that wasn't protected by his breastplate of righteousness. Church, it doesn't matter who you are. Unrighteousness will take you out. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how long you've been knowing the Lord. I don't care what your family reputation is. I don't care what your background is. It doesn't matter. Unrighteousness will take you out. It takes marriages out. It takes families out. It takes ministries out. And the only way to guard your life from unrighteousness is simply to live right in God's eyes. Kelly, would you come join me on the keyboard? What's wild about this story is that a king thought scary place in America today where we think that we can manipulate God we can control the will of God by our actions church I came to warn you today if you do not guard your heart if you do not put on the breastplate of righteousness unrighteousness will take you out will you bow your heads and close your eyes with me today as I prepared, I felt like I was supposed to ask you a question. Where are the holes in your armor? Where are the holes in your breastplate? Where is the unrighteousness in your life? What part of your life is not pleasing the Lord? Where are the holes? What area are you compromised in? As you sit in this sanctuary today with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, Psalms 139 says, search me, O God, know my heart. Would you just search your heart right now?
The prayer to pray right now at your seat is, Lord, what area of my life doesn't please you? What area of my life have I compromised in? What is not right in your eyes?